Hello and welcome to the Tom Hutch podcast where it's my job to interview individuals who have made a successful career within the music industry and to find out how they got to where they are and any tips or advice that they have for musicians of any level and at any stage of their own careers. In this first episode, my guest is Jim Knight on Twitter at Knight Studio Jim, spelt K-N-I-G-H-T-S-T-U-D-I-O-J-I-M, who's one of the UK's leading saxophonists and producers. Over the course of his career so far, he's performed with the likes of Carly Minogue, Cielo Green, Gary Barlow, James Morrison, Beverly Knight, Ollie Murs, The Overtones, Michael Bublé, Robbie Williams, and many, many more, as well as having been the musical director for Louis Matters and Katie B, among others. As well as performing live, uh, Jim also does recording sessions around London and runs his own studio, Nighttime Studios, where he engineers and produces alongside the performing. He's uh, engineered and performed for Leon Lewis, The Saturdays, Ellie Goulding's Twilight Sessions, and most recently, Carrie Hope Fletcher's latest album, When the Curtain Falls, which is currently ranked fifth in the iTunes album charts. Jim also writes library music across all genres, from uh, trad jazz to carriage and punk, and also works in TV, uh, having advert credits for huge companies such as Burger King, and is the co-writer of ITV1's Sunday Scoop and Sunday Side Up theme tunes. The breadth and depth of Jim's career uh, means that he has really unique insights into all kinds of areas in the industry, from live touring to recording sessions to West End shows to being a producer, uh, and anything else on the other side of the glass, really. Uh, we talk about a lot of stuff in this episode, uh, including transitioning from being a student to becoming a fully-fledged professional performer, how to get and keep the work that you want, uh, the current state of the music industry, social media and its uh, influence on musicians' careers, and much more. The audio quality of this first episode leaves something to be desired, as uh, Jim's voice may be a little grainy, I recorded it over Skype, it wasn't the best audio quality, but I, I'm sure you have learned since then. And all subsequent episodes are much better recorded and they are much better audio quality. So please forgive me. Look past the poor audio quality because I assure you there is some incredible information uh, that we discuss in this episode. So I hope that you enjoy this interview with Jim Knight. What is it that you uh, you would actually say that you do? Yeah, it's difficult that because it sort of changes quite a lot. I guess I, I guess I kind of... I get bored really easily, if I'm honest, so I try and do a mixture of stuff. Initially, I was certainly an instrumentalist as a saxophone player, and I still do a lot of saxophone playing, um, and uh, I would sort of say that, and producing probably at the same level at the moment, so I guess they would be sort of 50-50, really. Oh, right, um, okay. But I also mix a lot as well, and um, and obviously teach, you know, Guildhall, and I lecture in production at BIM as well. Um, which is also a really important part of what I do. You know, I love that just as much as I love everything else. But yeah, a, a real mix of stuff, really. So I guess none of it really sort of feels like it's like a, the number one thing. They're all kind of on an equal level, really. It feels like these days. Yeah, it's very interesting because these. It, I mean, from my education, people always tell me that there's not really ever one thing that musicians can do these days. 
Mm. It's more like you kind of need to need to have several different things going on to be able to make a proper living out of it. Um, yeah, I would definitely agree with that. And also, I just, just as a side note, I would celebrate that as opposed to it being like, oh, it's not like the good old days. <laughs> no, absolutely. It's I mean, I'm like yourself. Cool thing, man. It's good. I know you do lots of different stuff as well, right? Mm, yeah, yeah. I mean, like you say, it keeps it very interesting for me. and I'm sure a lot of people, like you say, like the fact that they get to do various other things because they get bored doing one thing. So do you, you said you started mainly on saxophone. Was that that was that the yeah. one thing you did for? Yeah, for a long time. So I, I started playing piano when I was five. I had one of those piano teachers that used to hit you over the hands with a ruler. Oh god! So I um, I mean, not like, like all the time. That would be really unfair. But it really, <laughs> really put me off massively. So I gave that up when I was like seven or eight, which obviously now I massively regret. But hey, uh, I had a good time playing on my bike. And then started playing the clarinet at about eight, because in the olden days, everyone said you had to play the clarinet first, and my neither of my parents were musicians, uh, and so they just kind of went with the advice to start playing the clarinet in order to play the saxophone. They started playing the saxophone when I was about nine or ten, I think, uh, and from the minute, I mean, it was really was like from the moment of like picking it up, it was like, okay, this I'm going to do this, I don't, don't want to do anything else, I just want to do this. Right. Uh, which I feel massively fortunate because I know a lot of people spend their whole lives trying to work out what it is that they want to do. And uh, I kind of knew at 10 years old that's what I want to do, you know, um, which I'm sure, I don't know when you started playing, but that's for me, it was, yeah, it was, my life had already felt like it had been like mapped out at that point, or at least I was going to give it a good go, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cause I, know, I know a few yeah, musicians. Local local bands, and I grew up in Harrogate in North Yorkshire. There was a really good music service there at the time. Uh, I had a great saxophone teacher. He was super encouraging. Started doing gigs by the time I was sort of twelve or so. Right. We went off doing paper rounds, and you're doing like pub gigs. Um, <laughs> that was way better than the paper rounds. Um, and yeah, just kind of. Uh, I just loved it, you know, right from the right from the outset, and that's not left yet. You know, I still I still really love it. It has its ups and downs, but um, I wouldn't have it any other way, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's interesting you say because so saxophone was like your third instrument, essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I know I know a lot of people who they've only ever played one instrument for their whole yeah. lives. Um, yeah. And I guess, I mean, would you see doing producing as like almost like another instrument? It's another type of skill and everything together. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a funny one because production is predominantly, the way that I see it, is predominantly uh, people management and getting the best out of people. The technical skills are engineering and I kind of, the two things for me are a bit separate. Right. Um, I love engineering as well. Uh, but that's something I've had to work really hard at because it's, uh, you know, it's it's quite technical. And if you're engineering and producing at the same time, trying to make that work can be quite difficult because you're doing, you know, you're multi- you're massively multitasking because you're trying to get a really fantastic, say, for example, you're doing a lead vocal, you're trying to get an amazing vocal sound at the same time as trying to get an amazing vocal performance. And the two things, like the, the records that I produced where I haven't been engineering have been fucking amazing because not the records themselves but the actual experience of doing it of course the records have been amazing um, <laughs> it, it, um yeah the the, the um the actual 
the way of doing it where I'm not having to sit behind the desk and engineer. That, I mean, that's just how records used to be made, and it's, it's you can see why as soon as you do it because you're literally just focused on the performance. Um, so I don't know if that's really answering the question. <laughs> I kind of rambling on, man. But yeah, that's yeah. It, it is another instrument, I suppose. Plus, you know, I play drums and I play very rudimentary guitar and very rudimentary bass and very rudimentary key. Like, give me an instrument and give me like a couple of hours and I'll have like a really good go at trying to make it sound okay. Mm. You know what I mean? And, and I think that's important too. Is to not sort of. Um, box yourself into a corner where you only play I only do this yes yeah. that's, that's not a good way to survive particularly I don't think it's healthy either you know no not at all so you've got quite a good understanding of like pretty much all the elements that go into music making so. like all the I instruments so. and everything I think I, I hope so I kind of I got, when I first moved to London after I'd been to you know I went my sort of educational background is I I, I went to Cheetahs when I was 16 I was the me and another girl were the first ever saxophones they had there because right. the saxophone was seen as being this sort of you know really progressive instrument <laughs> <laughs> which is hilarious now I'm talking 1990 here not, not you know 1960 right. and uh, that was amazing I had an amazing time uh, I then went to Berkeley after that for uh, I only did about eight or nine months um, because I thought I wanted to be a jazz musician and that was what you did. You either went to Berkeley or the New School uh, and I got loads of sponsorship and stuff and a couple of scholarships and things and went there and when I got there, I quickly realised that I just didn't want to be a jazz musician. I didn't love it enough to want to be a jazz musician. Right. I loved it, but I didn't want to dedicate my entire life to playing jazz. Um, so I did eight months there, then I came back to, came to London, moved to London and went to the academy uh, and did the jazz course at the academy, which was really eclectic at that time. It was run by Graham Collier. He's no longer with us, but it was um, again. It was really in its infancy. I think it's the third year or the fourth year that it existed. Third year that it existed. Right. So we were seen as being like the proper mental bastards that didn't play classical music. Who <laughs> were all kind of you know second class citizens and. So that was fun, you know, and in a weird way, that was sort of fun, you know. And I only realised sort of later on how hard Graham must have had to work to get to make that course work. I didn't properly appreciate it at the time, I don't think. But then when you're 19 and cocky twat, you're not going to appreciate much, are you? Know? <laughs> um, but yeah, and then did like four years in four years in London, um, which uh, was amazing. I had an amazing year. The, the year that I was in had um, Paul Booth was in my year. He was 16 when he started at the academy, which wow. was kind of unheard of. Um, Ian Price, who's now Ian East, who's another fantastic saxophone player. So there are three of us. Uh, a drummer called Russ Morgan, who only lasted a couple of years, but he was killing. Um, Andy Tolman was on bass. Steve Corley on keys. These are still people that I still work with now, you know, I still see now. Most, not all of them, but most of them. Um, yeah, some really, I was very lucky, some really fantastic musicians, you know, who, who have really sort of, your peers are such a huge influence, you know, on, on at that period of your life. I don't know how you found that, but yeah, certainly for me, that certainly was a big deal. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, yeah, they, people, you always, I can tell I'm going to be working with people for the rest of my life, like you say, just from just from knowing them while you're, while you're getting educated with them, essentially. Absolutely, man. Um, but yeah, so that was like, so that was all your kind of education from when you started. So yeah. let's talk about like, how did you, how did you get from there to like where yeah. you are today is the yeah. like you know so i think i did the, i think i did the similar 
a similar route to what I would sort of recommend to most musicians when they leave music college is that initially I kind of left. I was doing a lot of work while I was at college. I was gigging, gigging quite a lot. I was doing quite a lot of sessions. I was quite lucky in that um, d- uh, trumpet player Duncan Mackay was in my year, uh, who was 26 when he started in the first year. He was already really established. You know, he played with us three. He played with Jamiroquai. I think no, I can't remember. But he was really like already quite a well-established name. Uh, and he and I worked together quite a lot. He worked with a lot of other people as well, but he and I worked together quite a lot. So I was fortunate that I was able to kind of do quite a lot of recording sessions while I was at college. Uh, I left, uh, finished my degree. I stayed in London the whole time I was at college. I didn't go home at all. So I didn't go home in the summer holidays. I just stayed in London and tried to, you know, make enough money to pay the rent. And same as everybody's done, you know, I just wasn't making a lot, any money really. Um, I had a tour booked, and on the day of the tour, this is in September after I'd left, uh, I'd left college in June. On the day of the tour, the tour got cancelled, so I was basically oh god, and it was like a two month thing as well. Oh no! Um, and so I had nothing at all, and and at that point, I thought, well, okay, I'm not brilliant at being completely skinned. Like I don't like it. I don't know anyone who likes it, but I really <laughs> like I really didn't. So I like practiced really loads of stuff I couldn't do so I probably can't do it now that's for sure for like a three weeks and then I just thought I can't I need to pay the rent up so I started looking for teaching jobs and I did I ended up doing three days a week um over the following sort of three or four years and I promised the, the sort of thing that I promised myself was that after each year went I would drop one day's teaching because it wasn't at that time as a 22 year old 23-year-old, it wasn't necessarily what I wanted to be doing, but I had to survive. Mm. So in order to survive, you have to adapt, right? Yeah. Um, and so I did, I, I, and I dropped each day. I did a lot, did quite a bit, a few function gigs, and then sort of from that, I, you meet different people, and there's no magic formula. It was like a real slog, and then from that slog, certain things kind of pop up, and um, I wouldn't say that of all the artists that I've worked with, and there's sort of been loads and loads and loads, I was never uh, in a horn section, you know, really. I've always kind of depth on pop gigs. So I'll go and do it for like a month, or I'll go and do it for 10 gigs, or, or whatever it is, you know. it's rare. There's been a few tours that have been my gig, my gig. Um, but generally speaking, I've kind of come in, do it for a while, and then go and do something else. And... For a long time, that really I found that really difficult. But now, and certainly in the last sort of decade, um, actually, it's massively preferable because, from a horn section point of view, it's pop music is not the most difficult thing in the world. Let's just put it like that. <laughs> right. Um, and you're usually, if you're doing a twenty song, if it's a twenty song set, the horn section are probably on for ten tunes. Hmm. Um, and the other issue is, of course, the first thing that's going to get cut if there's budget cuts, which there will be, will be the horn section. Right, they will yeah. always they always get rid of the horn section first. Um, and I think that's why horn players always have four or five gigs on the go all the time, or at least two or three. Um, and they tend to roam around in packs, usually just outside the pub. <laughs> or inside the pub, usually in the pub, uh, in packs, and that's sort of fine if that's your uh, that's your mentality, and I get it. But um, yeah, it's 
it, it was just it's a slow burn, man. And I still feel like there's a lot I want to achieve. Um, I still feel like there's an awful lot of stuff that I haven't done yet. I still feel like a massive failure. I think that's fine. I think it's normal to feel like that. I think wow. if you kind of think that you're super cocky and think that you're nailing it, then there's something sort of wrong, you know, uh, somewhere. I still feel that there's I've got an awful lot left to do. I don't think I've got anything left to prove particularly because I don't think that's healthy. Mm. But I, there are a lot of things that I want. I still want to do, you know, without a shadow of a doubt. I don't feel like I made it. Do you know what I mean? What? Because I don't really know what that means. I mean, I right. suppose on paper, if you look at it, and, and and there's lots of things that I've done that I've forgotten that I've done. You know, it's, and that's not being cocky. It's just that I'm 43. You know, and I've drunk a lot most of my life. I can't remember much. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's not. It's not. Um, it, yeah, it's just. Uh, I don't. I don't know many sort of really great musicians who 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 feel like that they've. They've like they've nailed it. They've made it. You know, I, I don't know many musicians like that. I can't think about that. I, that I like. You know, there are some, but yeah, we'll mm. leave that this conversation. That's <laughs> uh-huh. uh, really interesting. You say that because there's there's a lot of people that always. I think there is this kind of image that musicians have of like having made it, and they always they put people that they know, like they there are exceptions that they think have made it because they've got this one gig or mm. because they've, you know, got work for X amount of time or whatever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's really interesting because I, I don't think obviously when you're, when you're in that circle, you can see all the people above you doing stuff that you, you want to be doing essentially. And then yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually, think it's, it's all right to say that as well. You know, I think it's, it's all right to be like a particularly, you know, particularly in like twenties. You know, I was like insanely jealous of certain players, but mm. not because not of, not for the right reasons. Like not for their playing, or not for, but but because they were doing a gig that I wanted to do. Yeah, that's, that's just weird. You know, it's like you kind of grow out of that. But yeah, it is strange. It's a strange thing. It's quite. Um, I think it's harder now, just because everyone has got this airbrushed existence on the internet mm. where everybody is having the fucking best time in the world everyone is doing the greatest gig known to mankind everyone is eating the most incredible food where's yeah. all the fucking shit then where's all the shit because every time I you know life is not like that at all <laughs> and I get it but yeah yeah, it's, it's I think it's much harder now if you if you're feeling isolated as a musician and you're you're on social media which I guess pretty much everyone is because they feel like they have to be Mm. And you're looking at seeing what your contemporaries are doing and 60% of your contemporaries are off doing tours somewhere and you're not doing anything. It makes you feel like shit, man. It doesn't make you feel good. It just makes no. you feel, oh, well, you know. Yeah. Um, but it's like you said, if, to get to a certain stage or to, like, to be where, where like you're, someone like yourself has got, it, you, nobody, like everyone can read the highlights on paper, but people don't ever really talk about or know about the, like you say, the slog behind it to actually, actually get there. And it does, oh, I'm, you know, starting to realise more myself now. Um, yeah. I'm sure many other people my age are that like there is a hell of a lot of work that goes into doing it. And then I don't. Do you, do you feel like it's it's luck, or do you feel like it's people you know, or like a combination of just various things that. Yeah, I don't think I don't think luck really comes into it. I think there's some sort of maybe there's the odd bit of serendipitous moments where you happen to be in the right place at the right time. But I uh, definitely 
it's definitely not being an arsehole is like a massive part of it. No, really, right. Becoming across like that, it's <laughs> true. Mm. Um, I just not, yeah, not being a wanker is like a really big. I mean, for example, if you were going to go on, if you were uh, say either a fixer or an MD, and you were fixing a band, and the band was going to go away for six months, would you pick like the saxophone? Let's just go with saxophone players. If you were going to pick the saxophone player who is like absolutely world class but a massive pain in the tits, or are you going to pick the one who is maybe seventy percent? of the way there but really easy to hang out with mm. pick the one that's easy to hang out with you just are yeah, you know, it, yeah. it can be amazing but if you're an arsehole people aren't you, you're going to end up just having to run your own thing all the time because no one's going to want to book you mm. um, because you know you get a few chances obviously you get a few chances but if you prove yourself to be um, a difficult person to be around then those those gigs dry up you know no one wants to. The tour bus life is not. You know, I haven't done that much of it. I absolutely hate it. I'm six foot three, which doesn't help. But <laughs> it's not. Um, it's not. Um, it's not glamorous, man. And if it's there's the. I mean, we did one tour with a girl called Rumor, who was incredible. And there were fourteen of us on a fourteen berth bus. You know, it was a full, full packed bus. Um, and you've all got to get along, and it's a bit like being on a submarine. You know, I imagine. Mm. Um, but obviously, you can get off and get drunk which you can't in a submarine <laughs> well you probably you probably die quite quickly um, it's yeah you've got a kind of everyone's got to get along with everyone else and it's yeah it's, diff- it, it, it's difficult you know that, that the way that you're beha- you behave to other people I don't think this has really got to do with music though but I just think generally if you can try and put try and be a generous kind soul you were probably going to get fucked over a few times but better that than be a jaded difficult non-giving Asshole, do you know what I mean? It's just mm. it, 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 in everything, but certainly when you're self-employed, because you know we all just employ each other at the end of the day. That's kind of how it works. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and your personal relationships, they shouldn't come into it, but of course they come into. They like totally come into it. They are seventy-five, eighty percent of of all work that you get is due to personal relationships, mm. whether they be you know a professional relationship or whether that be whatever that means. Or whether that be a you know an actual friendship, you know people want to work with their mates, man. That's why we do what we do. You know we make a better sound with our friends, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's a big it's a big part of it. But I guess yeah, if anyone takes the only bit of advice away from this that makes that they take, just just don't don't be an asshole. It's as simple as that, really. And you'll probably be all right, you know. Yeah, yeah. So can you do you feel like because you you said it before about like people skills, especially with producing? Do you feel like a lot of I don't know stuff that you would say has been successful, or stuff that you remember being like, man, I, I was I was so pleased I was involved with that. Do you feel like people skills are like a huge part of making that overall experience, you know, something that was great? Yeah, I, I think they do, but I also think that a lot of stuff that I've been fired from is because of my personality. Um, I'm quite happy to admit that, you know, I've I've, I've got a lot better at it. Um, it's a bit of a game, really. Um, it's Possibly not so much of a game if you're doing, you know, like your own projects with your with your mates. However successful they are, you know, you, someone like don't picking someone out of the air. Someone who I play with who I think is I rate to bits is Adam Betts, who I'm sure you've heard of, and mm. he's got a band called Three Trap Tigers, and he does plays with Goldie, and he's an absolutely incredible, ridiculous drummer. But he's also an incredibly 
decent human being as well. And he has uh, he doesn't have to really be anyone other than himself. And that's yeah, he's like world class. Um, but I also think that if he was a dick, he probably wouldn't get. You know, there are other people that are world class too. Um, but he's just an easygoing guy who's also quite funny and intelligent. But a lot of the stuff that he does, things like Three Trap Tigers, or he's just been doing. Um, Square Pusher Live as well, which oh, I went right. to see, which was completely ridiculous. Like, I didn't think that it could be done live, but it can. Mm. Um, but he does stuff, he follows this path of stuff that he loves, and he's able to kind of make that work so he can just be himself. For the rest of us, you know, I sometimes you kind of got to turn the line a little bit and maybe rein, rein it in. And I, I sort of hate that about um, music industry, but sometimes you've got to try and keep your mouth shut and just like do your job and keep your head down um, and as you can probably tell already I'm not very good at that <laughs> <laughs> I'm better than I used to be but I I've, I have struggled with it um, um, but it's uh, yeah I think I'm uh, I'm sort of slowly get, at 43 years old you know I really should have got this together a while ago I am getting better at it um, but I'm probably getting employed more for who I am now certainly on like production and stuff and, and I guess playing wise um, a bit more for yeah the kind of player that I am or the kind of producer that I am and my personality is very much wrapped up in that mm. uh, and sort of the lecturing thing as well um, as opposed to when I was in my 20s and my 30s and I was probably particularly in my 20s you know pretty arrogant I guess and probably not very uh, kind, like kindness, I think is very underrated. So if you can help someone out with something, then and it's not not a big deal. Then to you, then why would you not do that? You know, mm. it's we're, we should be more of a community. You know, um, and it's because it's become it feels like it's become more and more competitive. I think it was always very competitive, but it feels that the the market is saturated with people who want to do the job that we do. Mm. And, problem with that is that you've got this whole x factor if you dream it hard enough it'll happen well the problem with that is you can dream it as hard as you like but if you're completely shit at what you do you you can fucking just spend your whole life dreaming about it you're not going to get not going to get any kicks yeah um and we sort of are living in this in this time where everyone is really special they're not (laughs) they are maybe as individuals but as music, I'm talking from a musician's point of view. Everyone's like soup. Everyone's amazing. Everyone's special. No, they're, they're not. They can't. They can't be. That doesn't make sense. Like mathematically, that's just not. It doesn't work. You know? mm. um, so in order to rise above that, I think just yeah, you have to kind of stick to your guns, but also just be a be a good person. You know, just be a good person to other people. Um, I can't really reiterate that enough. So I'll, I'll stop banging on about <laughs> it. But. Yeah, it's yeah. a big part, man. It's a massive part of it. Mm. So it almost like when people talk about like you know somebody has a really distinctive sound or like they yeah. have their thing, like um, just from hearing you say all that, and I've never thought about it before, but it's quite interesting. Maybe like it seems like your personality, like you say, is wrapped up in that. So like your sound, but then also your personality, like the the two things go together. Like when people think of you and your playing and everything like that. They definitely, I think they definitely do. I think the, the sort of this, the kind of improvising saxophone, improvising gigs that I get now are um, 
there aren't there aren't loads of them, but you know there are some of them still, and they are usually. Um, I'm not really talking sessions. Sessions are different. We'll talk about that in a minute. But I think as a session musician, that's a completely different thing. But as a uh, as a sort of improvising player, um, yeah, I get booked to do like you know 100% nosebleed. That's the way that I play. It's like I I, I absolutely go for it mm. massively. And sometimes it comes off and sometimes it doesn't, like genuinely, like it really doesn't. And I'm very much uh, the kind of improviser that I'm, do- I'm only as good as the people that I'm playing with. Because right. if, if, do- if they don't come with me, it doesn't, it doesn't work. Like mm. I could never be one of those um, fantastic, there's quite a few great British jazz players who does the kind of pickup rhythm section thing, goes all around the country and plays pickup rhythm sections, playing standards and sounding like amazing. Uh, I'm not. I'm not good enough to do that. I'm not even close. You know, there's no way. Um, I need to sort of be playing with people who are going to really kind of back me up because I'm. You know, I tend to really, I tend to really go for it. Um, and like I say, yeah, sometimes it comes up and sometimes it doesn't. And I'm like at the point now where I kind of really enjoy the times where it doesn't work, <laughs> right? As as much as the times when it does, because it's I find it fascinating. You know, especially if it's someone that you haven't really played with before and you're really going for something and they're just kind of not, and they're not coming with you. And it's like, it's just hilarious. It's <laughs> so weird. Um, and I always learn sort of learn something every gig, you know, it's like, um, and just to touch back on the session thing, um, I think in the session thing, the opposite applies. So, and I do this with like, with my Guildhall students is it's all very well having a personality in your playing, and that's really super important. But if somebody says to you, and again, I can just refer this to saxophones for now, but if somebody says to you, I want a 1950s R&B solo, for example, you should be able to do that. Right. It shouldn't sound like you doing a 1950s R&B solo. It should sound in the idiom. You should be able, as a session musician, to switch decades, to switch idioms. You should be able to do that. Mm. And you'll get more sessions because of it. Right. So in sessions, you feel like contextual playing is like that. That's the game. It's totally that. It's, it's totally that. It has to be that. It's not unless you're being specifically asked. Like I've done a load of stuff, stuff with Mr. Scruff. I've done a load of dance records, and then they they're asking for me to be me, and that's fine. So I'm me. Mm. But then I've also done like lots of horn section stuff. Like we did Cairo Emerald's album. Uh, last year here and um, she that's her, that stuff is that very much in that kind of 50s 40s 50s kind of pocket you know she's been doing that stuff for ages and so you play like that because that, that's what you've been asked to do you don't go well I don't do that or I can't really do that it's like well you know you need to get all these different styles together and like from a, again from a sort of horn section or a saxophone point of view you should be able to play like 1940s Coleman Hawkins style tenor you should why why can't you do that you should be able to do that and you should be able to sound like yourself as well mm. you should be able to flip between these things and I think you will get more work because of that and also it's really good fun like I really enjoy it I like try, I like challenge of trying to play in those different styles you know yeah um, and some of them I'm good at and some of them I'm not you know I have to work at it you know Mm. So when about did you realise like was it was it something you worked on when you were still studying or was it more like when you started getting different types of work and you started re- like realising oh hold on I need to be able to do this specific thing that I haven't worked on yet or is it 
yeah, it was totally later. I mean, I think as a young man, I I played hideously out of context on all kinds of things. Like, basically just doing the things that you've been practicing. Like, so you go and do a function gig and play some really out... I mean, I'm a massive Kenny Garrett fan. Play really out Kenny Garrett solo on Mustang Sally. Mm. No. <laughs> slap in the face. Sit down. Stop being a dick. It's not about you. Um, and the other thing, you know, obviously is... Who are you playing to? Like, I'm not... I think jazz can be quite uh, elitist, which is another thing that sort of put me off it a bit. Um, who, who are you trying to connect to? And kind of a little bit like what... Also, what do they want to hear? You know, what kind of thing do they... So, you know, you've got to play to the crowd. You know, DJs play to the crowd. Bands play to the crowd. As an ind- individual instrumentalist, you should be playing to the crowd as well if it's that sort of a gig, you know. Um and not just crowbarring in your own ego because you happen to have been practicing whatever it is that you've been practicing that month and making it fit in, in, in completely the wrong context. Mm. Context is everything, I yeah. think, with, with sessions, definitely. Mm. So talking about sessions, like, there seems to be... It's this The whole word session seems to be such a, like, mysterious thing... At the moment, into like nobody actually knows what it means particularly. I mean, as it, as you feel like it's changed since you started doing sessions, like yeah, I mean, totally. Did. I mean, I, I, the very first sessions I was doing, we were still on tape. I mean, and I'm only, I'm 43, I'm not that old, but they, you know, a lot of people were still on tape, and that was a thing, uh, and was a completely different way of playing because you were capturing a performance only. Um, yeah, you could drop in, but you, nothing could get fixed later. There was no screen. The no screen thing's like a really big deal as well. Like I turn my screen off all the time, but anyone will get to that. Mm. Um, yeah, it hasn't changed. Yeah, it has changed, and the word sessions changed. I still do what would be deemed to be, you know, session sessions uh, as as most people would think of them. So traveling to a major studio and playing on either jingles or records or whatever it is mm. in a big studio. So somewhere like Angel or Air or you know, wherever there aren't that many left, the, the, the sort of major ones, but and that would be like a normal session. Mm. Um, the other thing, of course, is the remote remote session thing, which is uh, a massive part of the of being a modern musician. You know, if somebody calls you up and says, "I need a horn section or a saxophone solo or a bass part on X, Y, or Z," and you've got a laptop, a decent converter, and a decent microphone. And you know what you're doing with those things, which is really important, by the way. But we'll, again, we'll get onto that. Um, that's also a session, as far as I'm concerned. What's the difference? You know, it still ends up on it still ends up on a record. Then it's a session. Then mm. dot. Yeah, um, it seems to be that that that's, that from from what you hear around these days, that's the way I perceive it's going now. Because, like you say, there's less of the bigger studios around. Um, yeah. And it's I think yeah, it's cheaper for everyone, really, isn't it? It is, and also, you know, the way that the industry, the industry sort of seems to have gone is that the people at the very top are still making a lot of money. Let's not forget that. That's that, but but that's not changed. That's always been the same. People have people have been getting ripped off by the people at the top of the industry since the industry started because of the word industry, music industry. It's not about the music. It's about money, and it's about making money. And that hasn't changed. That has always been the same. If you look at some of like the Beatles' early contracts and stuff, I mean they're they're totally getting stiffed. 
everyone's been getting stiff from day one. Um, but these days, it's just it's easier to kind of. I think it's easier to kind of not get quite as stiff, but consequently, the money is, is lower. Um, I don't know if I can make a good example of it without incriminating myself, so I won't say any names. But you know, like for example, I did a stadium tour in 2001, and I was getting 275 quid a gig in 2001. Right. Um, there's, um, I know people doing stadium tours now who are getting like way less than that. Mm. Certainly, arena tours. Let's go. Let's go with arenas, not stadiums. I didn't do a stadium tour. There are no stadiums in the UK. <laughs> um, yeah, so arena tour. You know, two hundred seventy-five quid a night with PDs. So twenty-five quid a day PDs with hotels, not on buses. And that was in two thousand um, and one. And yeah, you, you don't these days. You're very lucky to get PDs. Um, you're very lucky to be getting anything like that kind of money. And I'm talking pretty major acts here. I'm not. I'm not talking like up and coming acts. Mm. Um, and the record companies just don't want to pay out that. They don't want to pay out anymore. You know, they are. They've shrunk considerably because they were too slow to react to the internet. Mm. But that's kind of. If anyone's interested, there's a lot of that online where basically the, all the major record companies just didn't think the internet would be a thing. <laughs> Hilarious. Um, oh, and really? Arrogant, they didn't do anything about it. So um, yeah, more fool them, and also more fool us because you know. But yeah, it's just. That takes it back to the kind of doing a multifaceted, having a multifaceted career. Like you kind of have to now, mm. um, but I would embrace that. You know, I think it's great actually. Yeah. So the kind of the gap has widened almost between like performers and the the guys at the top. I, I think so, and I and I don't really necessarily. I think the artists do pretty well, but even then, I think um, they're bus- You know, it's business. And uh, let's face it, none of us, I don't think, got into being musicians because we liked business. Mm. So we wouldn't have just done something else that made a lot more money for a lot less hassle. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, I, I, it has to come back to the fact of like, why are you doing it in the first place? And if you're doing it to make, like, a, you, if you think you're going to make a load of money, then I, I just, you're not. You're just not. It's massively unlikely. Mm. If you think you're going to have a really interesting life with lots of peaks and troughs travel the world hopefully and meet a lot of amazing people then yeah that that probably will happen if you're any good and that's so really you've got it's that life versus like stuff argument like do you want loads and loads of stuff or do you want to have an interesting life and you know the the multi-millionaires that i have spoken to would probably swap and do something that they loved all the time most of them don't do stuff they love they do stuff that makes them loads and loads of money. Right, that's really interesting. Um, and I would, I would suggest that you know, it's not. I wouldn't discourage anyone from being a musician, even though it's not an easy life uh, financially. It's very rewarding in lots of other ways, providing that you can kind of keep your head above water and don't get yourself into loads of debt or get really bogged down with it. You know, mm. uh, I've loved it. You know, and I've had some really bad times and some really good times but um, you've got to kind of have both right I think in order to understand one and the other it's probably a Robert Robbie Williams lyric about that but I'm not <laughs> 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 so, uh, so when you were doing when you were first starting out to, to make ends meet like you said you did teaching or whatever did you yeah. ever do you ever go through a period of um, 
because I know a few people that do it, um, especially coming out of music college as well, is when yeah. they when they do gigs that they don't necessarily like want to be doing because they've worked out what they've got they want to do, but they have to make ends meet. Did you ever do yeah. a period of that in your life? Definitely. I mean, I, that, to be honest, there's still you know I I, I still sometimes there's still bits like that. I mean, I'm quite fortunate these days where most of the stuff I do I really like, but not not ev- not everything. I'm not you know. Um, yeah, totally. I mean, the, the way to do it, that I, the way to do it, I think, is to go like, okay, well, look, if I need to do, if this jazz gig, gig pays, I mean, we have this like joke between a, a load of us that like, there's like normal money and then jazz pounds. So like 50 English pounds is like 5,000 jazz pounds. But the only problem with jazz pounds is that like nowhere accepts, accepts them as legal currency. <laughs> um, so, but if you want to do your own project, then. Uh, you bankroll your own project with by doing something that you maybe don't love as much that pays four times the money. That's all right. That's kind of normal, right? I just I always thought that that was make complete sense to me. Mm. Like, okay, I'll do X because I want to do Y. Y pays almost nothing. X pays pretty well. So I'll do X for three months and then I'll concentrate on Y for a month because I've made enough money to live at that point. Um, yeah, totally do that. Yeah. And at the end of the day, like you're still making money through music rather than you know any other any other kind of job, isn't it? So exactly, you're still kind of you're still doing something that you really like. I think it's uh, it's just important not to get dis, dis, disenfranchised or disheartened, and to sort of keep in contact with all those all those people that are in the same boat and like trying to be honest with each other. I think I think when you're younger, people tend to be more honest. About it, and also think that generationally speaking, I think your generation can be a bit are able to be a bit more honest with each other because I think there is a bit of a move away. Certainly, the eighteen to twenty-two year olds that I know, my students, and the ones that I kind of work with, are kind of turning their back a little bit on social media, and it's not it, they they kind of are a bit more aware of the fact that it is kind of plastic and not really real. Mm. Whereas my generation have embraced it to the point of particularly Facebook have embraced it to the point of ridiculousness uh, and uh, has been much more of a struggle for us to go hang on a minute but that that's like I mean also some people just make shit up you know they just lie as well uh, and um, t- you know post pictures of again I'm naming no names post pictures of studios saying that they're in X, Y or Z studio and um, they're, they're not there very <laughs> weird. Like somebody I know was in a studio going, "This, this has just popped up on my feed. Uh, this guy's not. He's, he's like not here. This is a stock. This is a stock photo of the studio. It's not. It's total bullshit." Oh God. Um, so a lot of I think for our generation, we we're a bit. I don't know. It's all new. You know what I mean? It, there, you know, there was no internet in the nineties. You know, didn't where well, there was, but I mean, it didn't exist like it does now. We didn't use it at all. And for, the, for those of you that have grown up with it, I think you're a bit more intelligent about it and a bit more savvy about it. Um, and I think my generation is are sort of slowly coming to realise that it's like a, another tool, mm. but it definitely it's not the be all and end all. You yeah. know, I mean, how do you feel about sort of generally social media and that whole thing? Well, I definitely agree with your your point of like you know it's very easy for people to put up some highlights or even like you say just stuff that's just plain not true purely yeah. to let other people see what you're doing. Um, but, I mean, I, th- I feel like 
I was going to ask you about this because I feel like social media these days is is important. I, I feel like it's not something that can be ignored because it's such a big thing. Um, and I just I feel like it's quite hard to work out as a musician, especially self-employed, trying to work out how to use it to your advantage, but without being like the, the fake people or. Or just, or just like being like willy waving, show a like massive show off. Yeah, exactly. I mean, do you use social media yourself for stuff? I, I've got. I turned my Facebook off in January, um, and the reason being was that it, it came up and said "Happy Ten Year Anniversary," and I sat down and I'm like a lurker. I don't say much because, uh, as I, you probably already worked out, I get myself. I come in quite good today. I get myself into a lot of trouble, so I don't really say very much on social media. But I lurk. And I sort of sat down with a calculator and, like for you know five minutes, and I worked out how long I thought I'd spent in ten years on Facebook end to end, and it came out at like three months, right? My life end to end, and I just thought, oh, that's not that's not right. That's really messed up. Mm. Uh, so I the the account is like still exists, but it's in you know it's inactive. It's switched off. Um, uh, I do have a Twitter account. I have an Instagram account. I, I find Instagram actually. My wife's quite doesn't mind it, but I actually find Instagram even more offensive. <laughs> oh really? Just, everyone just seems to be having like an incredible time all the time. Mm, that does seem to be the kind of seem to be the point of it, but it is. And, and you're right. Yeah, it, of course it is. You're not going to just put down like a really miserable a picture of you crying and a cup <laughs> saving the tears for someone who gives a shit um, it's uh, yeah it is the, but, but why I don't, I'm sort of lost as to why really mm. um, so I'm you, a bit yeah I mean I'm going to start ramping my social media back up again um, but it's a fine like I, what you touched on already it's a fine line between appearing to be like really big headed and really pissing your mates off and then appearing to be busy and doing good things to people who may book you do you know mm. what I mean it's like mm. ha- the balance between those two things are difficult I think again generationally speaking I think your generation find it less of- well you can correct me if I'm wrong find it less offensive that people are putting up you know tour pictures or drum setup pictures or whatever than our gener- my generation do some of my generation find it fine a lot of us I think are just going what a massive show off whereas actually you're, as you said it's kind of the point of it is to show off right yeah yeah it's, it's interesting I mean have you ever got anything off the back of social media like that you know was just because of you've done something on social media yeah I mean I, I, I've probably had like because I run a studio as well, I, I probably have had a couple of grand's worth of work for, of people looking for a studio in this bit of London. Right. I mean, and that's, that's in 10 years. So not really. Not not much. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any like playing work. I think there's a few people have got in touch with me via Facebook Messenger. Like I left, you can shut your account and keep that open now. Mm. So, um, I think maybe there's been a few bits and bobs through that because they didn't have my number or something, but it's quite easy to get somebody's number now. Um, I don't know. I mean, have you had any work through social media, like, randomly? Um, no, not at all, actually. <laughs> yeah. I think about the amount... I mean, a couple of my mates who are much better at it than I am have a thing where, like, they don't have it on their phone at all, so they don't look at it when they're out because it's 
incredibly rude. Mm. Uh, but they do do set up side, say, 20 minutes a day, and they'll do it in the evening, and they'll sit on their laptop, bash out a few pictures on whatever platforms, um, and that's probably the way. That's probably the way to do it. Yeah, um, use it as a tool, like, like you said. Like a job, like a bit of the job. Yeah. I'm still not convinced, though. Like, I'm still not convinced it's the way to get more work. Like, mm. I'm really not. Um, I, c- I could be wrong. Um, I often am. <laughs> but I just, I, just, yeah, I just don't know that it's... Is it a way to get more work? I, d- I don't know, man. I just... I don't know. I mean, if you, the way that I see it is, like, if you went into the pub and there's six of you... And instead of having a normal conversation and a laugh, you literally just spoke your Facebook or your Twitter about how amazing everything was. You literally stopped being mates within a week. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's Absolutely, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dick, just like, look at this picture of my setup from this festival. Look, we had, I had such an amazing time. And then we did this drinks. Look at me with this. Look at me with George Benson. Look at his eyes. They're ever so blue. Contact lenses, by the way. Um, <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's it's just nah. It's, it seems a little. I don't know. I, I you can probably tell I really struggle with it. I, I find it quite difficult. Mm. Well, I think I think a lot of musicians do like you know it's there. It, it it probably should be used, but none of us know really know how to use it within the industry yet, or whether yeah. it should actually be. I don't know. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it still feels like it's sort of in its infancy, um, and. I don't think we really. I don't think anyone's really worked out whether it's like completely evil or good. I mean, I have issues with the whole echo chamber thing. I don't know. It's not. A, I know it's not an original thought or opinion. But you know, if you if you're um, for, let's just go with Brexit for example, where everybody on your feed is outraged because everybody on your feed is basically left wing because you're a musician and they're your mates you know if you've got 2,000 people in your friend group on Facebook or whatever mm. it is and people are like genuinely shocked and it's like well that's because you're only reading people who agree with you that's opinions yeah absolutely so how can you possibly get a view of them you know I try you know I just, I try not to read the news too much but you know I can't escape it and I'm not going to be so stupid as to not bother so I try and get a good broad thing so I'll read like the Daily Mail website you know which is horrendous but if I don't read that how many tens hundreds of thousands of people who are reading that how am I supposed to form a proper opinion I could, you can't just read the Guardian and go yeah I agree with all of that and because all you're doing is just nodding mm. and not everybody else agrees you know yeah um, slightly political there let's not go down that road <laughs> <laughs> yeah alright so we talked about a lot of different things um, you said that about 50% of your work now is is producing yourself so I mean let's talk about that how did you how did you get into doing that in the first place I suppose I've always been really interested in uh, studio stuff and engineering I had a four track uh, when I was a kid um, and Every session I did as a sort of young adult, I did a little bit. I did a, my work experience when I was like 14 in Yorkshire, was in a recording studio. Um, I've always found it really fascinating. Mm. Um, and I've hung out, I hung out with engineers quite a lot. There was an, uh, while I was at the academy, there was an incredible uh, engineer, uh, Kirsten Cowie, who's absolutely like world class engineer. And um, I hung out with her a lot, and 
just watching what was going on and things like at, at sessions if I had time I would always like say could I just hang out and I'd sit at the back and quietly just observe what was going on um, and then I um, I moved in with uh, into a house where there was a studio already um, built and I'm still out sitting in here now although I don't live here anymore I haven't lived here for about a decade um, and started making started recording my mates you know um, and made lots of mistakes and have never really kind of looked back really um, it goes through periods of being super busy and then periods of not so much but these days it's pretty stable you know I, I tend to focus 50-50 I kind of got that wrong for a while I would either focus like 80% on studio 20% on playing mm. and then I'd really miss playing or vice versa. I'd be doing loads and loads of playing and not my studio, and I'd really miss being in the studio. Yeah. So now I kind of have a. I'm quite lucky at the minute. It seems to be. It'll probably change again, but right now it's a, it's a quite a good balance. You know, it's a good balance of stuff. Um, and I seem to end up producing a lot of older bands. So um, I did a load of work on the Last Ruts uh, DC album. They were a huge punk band, late seventies. And I'm just in the middle of working with a band called The Men They Couldn't Hang, who are amazing band, again, late 80s, real cult band, um, very much like the Pogues, but English, so kind of have a much more of an English slant, but we've been together 35 years. Um, that's really good fun. Right. And then in between that, I write a lot. So I write a lot of production music, and I've been doing that probably for about five years like I've done I did do some stuff about ten years ago but I've done a lot more production music in the last kind of five years so when it's not busy I will be doing that right so when you say writing production music is that what's that specifically for is that like, like is that library music or is that something different yeah, essentially yeah and I do work for lots of different companies again it's it's changed a lot in the last uh, in the last decade um because everyone's got everyone's got a studio in a box, you know, mm. uh, and there's nothing, and I have nothing. I have no problem with that, by the way. Um, so the market is much more saturated. So your returns are very different from what they were, say, in the '80s, where a lot less people were doing it. Um, a lot of musicians are doing it now, and you know what? It's fun. It got my. It's really got my mixing chops together because you do stuff in every single style possible. Mm. Uh, so I've done, you know, sort of right up to date Drakey kind of tracks all the way back to 1920s 1930s kind of uh, vintage jazz stuff and I've got to try and make it all sound authentic and I, I find that really challenging and I really I absolutely love it actually it's, it's great um, yeah maybe not for everyone but, for, but I, I really like the challenge of trying to capture stuff you know and make it work in that con in the, all those different contexts. Back to context again. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. As, as a mix engineer, you know. Hmm. Shall we? Shall we finish with a few short questions? Yes, mate. A few things. Brilliant um, answers, aren't they? <laughs> no, no, it's brilliant. Thank you very much. Um. So, as a saxophone player and a producer, if you fifty fifty, um, have you got like just a few? Well, like what what kind of gear do you use for those things? So, Saxophone-wise, I was very lucky. I bought a 1954 Mark VI Alto, because Alto is kind of my main horn. Uh, when I was 17, I found one in Manchester for like 1,200 quid. That's kind of, it was sick, but it was a long time ago. Uh, and I've never changed from that. I mean, it's a bit of a classic, really. 
and mouthpiece. I same thing. All my students will know this already, but basically, I bought a second-hand dented Jeff Law of nine metal uh, when I was sixteen, and I haven't changed it since. It's this is exactly the same setup from when I was sixteen. Right. Um, my sound has changed completely, um, and so we'll keep the answer short. But yeah, I mean, basically, you can get bogged down in all this stuff. Baritone, I've got a lovely Yanagisawi which is great. Uh, tenor, I play, controversially play Mark 7. I really like them. A lot of people don't like them, but I really like them. I think they're mm. super good value. Um, and then, studio-wise, I mean, that's, yeah, I've got quite a big studio, so I won't list it all. <laughs> if anyone wants to know what the gear is in the studio, then they can go to the website, which is nighttimestudios.com, um, and have a look. And, yeah, I mean, it's all based around an old Amec uh, desk. I've got lots of old outboards. And then I've got lots of new digital front-end stuff as well. So, uh, yeah, and a ton of microphones. I mean, I basically spent I spend most of – well, now I've got kids, I spend a lot less money, but I still spend quite a lot of money on gear <laughs> still. But I'm a bit of a gearhead, that's why. Yeah, I think a lot of musicians probably are, especially if they get into recording stuff. Totally are, man. It's a really slippery slope. <laughs> yeah. Right, so do you have any uh, recommended listening, just like your favourite – Three albums. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it changes all the time. I mean, at the moment, I'm listening to uh, there's a band called the band called Doors, D A W E S, uh, and there's an album called We're All Gonna Die, and that's um, yeah, that's an absolutely incredible record. Um, yeah, strongly recommend that. That's really good. I kind of dug back into the um, car the the Cardigans again. All of their output I really like, but there's an album called Long Gone Before Daylight, which seems to I seem to be listening to quite a bit at the moment as well. Um, the last Tame Impala record is ridiculous. Mm. Uh, I see them live at Alexandra Palace. Which I think it's possibly the loudest thing I've ever been to. She's <laughs> really saying something, but I mean, they were they were completely ridiculous. Um, and then yeah, I mean, if you haven't checked it out, I mean, check out the Three Trap Tigers album as well. That's completely nuts. Um, yeah, that's four, isn't it? Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a hi-fi freak as well, so I probably buy four, four or five albums a week. Right. Still, and I buy them like on CD or vinyl. I've got, you know, I'm into vinyl too. Um, and I, yeah, I kind of really love it. Still, like I'm completely in love with it. Oh, and the la the last Granddaddy album is also really amazing. It's definitely worth checking out. Okay, I don't know that one. I'll definitely check that one. That's really, this is really great. They're a great band anyway, but this this last album's particularly good. They haven't had one for about seven or eight years, and it's killing. Oh, and John Grant, the last John Grant album, is ridiculous. Although Pale Green Ghosts, I think, is slightly better, which is the, the second, second album. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, we're on for hours, man. I'll stop. Because <laughs> <laughs> I just, yeah, I'm still buying stuff all the time, you know. I'm just yeah, buying. great. Well, there's six or seven there, then. Awesome. Well, well, thank you very much, Jim. You're welcome, man. Uh, it's been great. It's been really interesting right. to hear everything you've got to say about just generally everything. Thank you for listening to the Tom Hutch Podcast. I appreciate you giving the time to listen. I hope you enjoyed this talk with Jim as much as I did. You can find Jim at his website, nighttimestudios.com. That's night spelled with a K. 
go check it out and see all the cool stuff he's doing. And if you want to check out the show notes or download a transcription of this episode, you can head over to tomhutchmusic.com forward slash podcast and find it all there. If you like this episode, please give it a rating and or a review. I'd very much appreciate it. If you have any ideas of guests that you'd like to hear from or questions that you would like me to ask or you just want to tell me why it was such a bad show, I would still love to hear from you and you can get in touch with me via email at tlhutchmusic at gmail.com or on social media at tlhutchmusic. Thanks for now. See you next time.